0: So you're listening to Afternoons with Bill Arnold that we want to hear from you. We'd love to know what you think about the show. Well, most of us do. Bill says this week he's only accepting five-star reviews. Either way, you can take the official Afternoons with Bill Arnold listener survey. It just takes a couple of minutes, and you get a chance to win an Amazon gift card. Text the word SURVEY to 877-933-2484. Find it online at MyFaithRadio.com slash SURVEY.
1: And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. It's been a wonderful hour with Dr. Mark Muska. Thanks again for all the great questions. It makes it so interesting to hear from listeners. And you ask such amazing, great questions. And I think it's a a testament to uh, how smart you are and how well you think. And I'm so impressed. So I I just love it. And we now are going to uh, get a chance to talk to Rebecca McLaughlin. So I am delighted to be talking to Rebecca McLaughlin. She is a PhD in English literature from Cambridge University and co founder of the Vocable Communications. I hope I said that right. She's a regular contributor to the Gospel Coalition, and her new book, Confronting Christianity 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion, has my immediate attention because of all the great questions she asks. Welcome to the show, Rebecca.
2: Hi, Phil. It's great to be here. <laughs>
1: you you are not afraid to tackle the tough ones, are you?
2: Ah, uh, well I don't know if I'm not afraid, but I, I'm foolish enough to, to do it nonetheless. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I want to talk about the perception today of Christianity and atheism and how yeah. has that changed in, in recent times?
2: I feel like when I was was growing up in the UK, um there was certainly a, a strong sense of um within my peer group in a kind of pretty secular and academic um, environment, that Christianity was declining, and that really atheism, and particularly a sort of secular humanism that, that wants to hold on to a high view of um, human value and human equality without the need for God, was going to fairly effortlessly replace Christianity in the coming decades. Mm-hmm. I think what's taken everyone by surprise, and this is a memo that's that's only starting to trickle back into the university is that this idea that modernization was going to bring secularization globally as it it did in Western Europe um, actually hasn't played out at all. (laughs) In fact, if we're looking forward to the next um, generation, next couple of generations, we're actually going to see an increase in religion globally, um, an increase in Christianity, a significant increase in Islam. And the proportion of people globally who are identifying as as non-religious, be it atheist, agnostic, or just of no particular religion is actually going to decline. Oh. So I think that's kind of a shock, a shock to the system for many of my non-believing friends.
1: Oh, it is indeed. What would you think would be the most controversial uh, point of, of Christianity today?
2: I think for us in uh, today's sort of Western culture, the the issue um, that can be most pressing is the questions around sexuality.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: For many of my friends, a lot of my Christian beliefs can seem like delusions to them and, you know, things that they might think I'm, I'm gullible for believing— when it comes to Orthodox Christian beliefs uh, in in terms of sexuality and and in terms of marriage, um, I think there we cross over in the minds of our friends from delusional to bigoted. And so there's a kind of moral force to the objections to Christianity there.
1: Um, I would love for you to say more about that because I think that is one of the uh, hottest topics right now. And it's one of the ones where uh, Christians feel like they're going to be persecuted and they're going to be labeled and they're going to be made fun of and... I just want to make sure we have the strength and we're not backing down from our position.
2: Yeah, and I think that, I mean, we, as Christians, we should never uh, shy away in some ways from being persecuted. That was what happened at the early church. That's was true. happening to many of our brothers and sisters globally, and and actually the reality that we're experiencing in the West here of it being in many ways very comfortable to be a Christian is what is more atypical. So on that, on that first point, I don't think we should worry about being persecuted in some senses. Uh, on the second point... I think that, that we have a real problem in the church that we don't actually understand the gospel logic that stands behind what the Bible says about sexuality. So, many of, of my Christian friends and influencers I get to chat with know that the Bible you know, ha, has um, clear boundaries around sex and um, you know, that, that, that's preserving sex for marriage between one man and, and one woman for life. And they know that there are particularly prohibitions around same same same-sex relationships of a sexual nature, um, meaning that we can't, as Christians, embrace same-sex marriage. But seldom do we actually know why that is. See, they feel like arbitrary rules that God should have put in the Bible just just to be they make our lives complicated and difficult.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: Um, And particularly for me, I mean, I've since childhood been romantically attracted to women. This is a a personal question for me, and were, were I not a Christian. Um, it's likely that I'll be married to a woman today rather than to a man. So I don't, I don't come to these questions with the desire to find the Bible saying actually no to same-sex marriage. But as I've dug more and more into the scriptures, I've been more and more convinced that what lies at the heart of, of biblical sexuality is actually the gospel. Because if we look in the, the Old Testament, we see this incredible metaphor of God and his people being compared to a faithful husband and an often unfaithful wife. Mm-hmm. And then in the Gospels, we see Jesus stepping onto the human stage and declaring that he is the bridegroom. And we see John the Baptist saying, in you know, my joy, I, I'm so full of joy because I'm like the friend of the bridegroom when the bridegroom's shown up, and Jesus is the bridegroom. We're thinking, well, if Jesus is the bridegroom, who's the bride? And we get the answer to that question bubbling up in multiple New Testament texts, not least in Ephesians 5, when Paul describes human marriage as a little sort of scale model of Christ's relationship with the Church. And then we see it massively coming back with a bang in the book of Revelation when the, uh, the angels announce that the wedding of the Lamb has come and Jesus' marriage to his church brings heaven and earth back together. So as we, as we approach questions of sexuality of any sort within a biblical framework, we've, we've got to realize that it's actually all about giving us a glimpse of Jesus' love for us. It just is, as human fatherhood at, at its best gives us a tiny taste of what it means for us to call God our Father— so the best possible human marriage gives us a little glimpse of Jesus' sacrificial love for us. So, uh, And I think that logic lies at the heart also of, of the reason why marriage is between uh, a man and a woman and not between two men or two women, because Jesus' love for his church is actually love across difference.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, is sexuality the big issue outside the Western world? Does the third world have a different uh, set of objections?
2: Well, this is very interesting, because in our cultural conversations, often— um, sexuality and diversity is is sort of mixed in with racial diversity so mm-hmm. you know we think of this category of diversity which means both um love across racial difference but also the same-sex marriage same-sex sexuality actually if we look at, in in global terms and, and we look at um, folks from non-western cultures uh, there's much less acceptance of of same-sex sexuality so it's interesting if our friends are calling anyone who would stand against um, same-sex marriage a a bigot and equivalent to a a racist, you know, sort of comparing the the gay rights movement today to the civil rights movement of of the 60s, most of the people they're dismissing with that language are actually not white. The folks who are much more likely to uphold same-sex marriage are actually white Westerners, um, not the majority world. So I think there's a kind of interesting... Dynamic at play there.
1: Mm-hmm. In your uh, book, one of the questions you tackle bravely is: Isn't Christian Christianity homophobic? So, if we're going to stay in this conversation just for now, how did you address that in your book?
2: Yeah. So, I think uh, again, as I come to these questions, as somebody for whom they are very personal, uh, and I, I have searched the scriptures on, on this topic, and there are a few things to say. To say one. Um, the Bible says very offensive things about people who uh, engage in, in same-sex um, sexual activity. But the Bible says even more offensive things about people who are self-righteous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reality is, any of us coming to the Scriptures, as we open the pages of God's Word, we should be offended by what we see. The, the Bible is an offensive book from beginning to end. And what's fascinating, is, as Jesus speaks about questions around sexuality, he actually he tightens up the Old Testament— So in the Old Testament, there was some provision for divorce, and Jesus uh, actually tightens that up. Um, He says, you know, you've heard that it was said um, you shouldn't commit adultery. Well, I say anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery. So far from being a kind of prophet of free love, Jesus is actually—he makes uh, the the demands of of sexual restraint on Christians more strict than they ever were before. But he's also the guy who's hanging out with prostitutes and, quote, sinners. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and anyone who comes to Jesus with a posture of brokenness over their sin is received and welcomed and embraced. And anyone who comes with a kind of pharisaical self-righteousness and thinks that they, they don't need Jesus um, is actually like those are the folks against whom Jesus is, is railing. So I think we, we have to recognize that um, the, the offensiveness of, of Christianity is, it, is, is primarily against the self righteous. And at the same time, we have to recognize that a significant number of the first Christians came to Christ from um, homosexual backgrounds and experiences. Um, We see this in in one of Paul's letters where he's he's addressing, um, you know, folks who've who've come to Christ out out of that background. And so I think sex is actually very important biblically. But I think every Christian is called to sexual self-control, whether you know, you're single as a Christian or whether you're married. The question is not, are you ever attracted to somebody you're not married to? The question is, will you submit your attractions to Christ? And because the Bible gives us marriage and, and um, sex within marriage as well as a picture of our relationship with Jesus and our, our desire for oneness with him, Actually, anytime we are feeling the, the pull of desire toward another human, that's, that's almost like a little uh, indicator to us of, oh, this, this is something which one day will be fulfilled in our relationship with Christ. You know, just as we have water and the idea of thirst to give us a glimpse of what it means to thirst for Jesus, the living water, and just as we, we have bread and food to give us an understanding of what it means when Jesus says he is bread of life and we should hunger for him— so our desire for sexual intimacy is something that should point us to Jesus and to its ultimate fulfillment one day when we're united with him forever.
1: Mm-hmm. Rebecca, how have you personally come to regard interpreting Scripture? I mean, do you favor a metaphorical interpretation or literal? And if so, uh,
2: why? Yeah, I always, I always enjoy this question because my background's in, in English literature, and I spent a year studying metaphor, particularly in, in Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the big misconceptions that we often have in the church is that you either take the Bible literally or you don't, that it's like this on-off switch, it's one or the other, and it's it's inconsistent somehow to take parts of the Bible literally and other parts not. And actually, if you read only Jesus' words, if you pick up a, you know one of those red-letter Bibles that only highlights Jesus' words, you'll see that Jesus uses metaphors all the time. I mean, I've already referenced a, a few of them, like when Jesus says he's the living water or when he says he's the bread of life or when he says he's the true vine. mm mm-hmm. He's not asking us to believe that he's literally a plant. He, he's tapping into this rich metaphor from the Old Testament of Israel as a vine and God as the vine dresser. And so if we confuse the idea of true with the, the concept of literal, we actually miss a lot of the truth the Bible has to teach us. At the same time, that doesn't at all give us a license to you know, not take literally some of the uncomfortable and difficult things that the Bible teaches for example, miracles, in particular, you know, Jesus' resurrection from the dead, which the New Testament authors are at pains to make us recognize is is an absolutely literal bone, flesh, and wounds resurrection. So I, I don't think that reading the Bible and attending to its metaphors and its parables and its stories at all releases us from its incredible claims and hard teachings.
1: hmm Rebecca McLaughlin is my guest. She has written a book called Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. We will take a very short break and be back with Rebecca in just a minute. Welcome back to the show. I am delighted to be talking to Rebecca McLaughlin. She's written a book called Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. As I think about the suffering that goes on in the world, I know that's a big issue for a lot of people, especially with apologetics. One of the questions you address in your book is how could a loving God allow so much suffering? How did you Mm. address that in the book?
2: We tend to come to the Bible with the assumption that if God really loved us, He could not intend for us to suffer. Mm -hmm. And there's some you know, logic to that, but actually that assumption crumbles on pretty much every page of the scriptures. <laughs> it does indeed. Uh, the Bible is written almost exclusively by suffering people and for suffering people. I think it's possible that the Song of Songs doesn't speak much to suffering, but otherwise, pretty much every other book of the Bible is very real about suffering. hmm And I think as with any other aspect of our life, God has has built into our experience ways in which we can engage with with him and meet with Jesus and I think what's what's unique about the Christian faith when it comes to suffering is that the suffering of an innocent man beaten humiliated abandoned abused dying on a cross is right at the heart of our faith it is literally the central peg of christianity and uh, and that is a, a brutal experience of suffering that is then redeemed through the experience of, of the resurrection. And so we as Christians are called to meet Jesus in our suffering, terrible as that may feel at the time, um, but we are also called to a suffering that, that has had its foundation, a hopefulness that we are engaging with the one man who can call dead people out of their graves and who mm. will one day wipe away every tear from, from our eyes. And the, the Bible passage that I find most helpful on this question is actually in, in John's gospel when Jesus um, is called by Mary and Martha because their brother Lazarus is sick and he's dying. And, and Jesus intentionally waits until Lazarus is dead before going to, to Mary and Martha. And, and the, the text is very interesting. It says because Jesus loved Mary and Martha and their brother he waited, he didn't go. You think, well, wait a minute, That's the... surely if he loved him, he would go.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But he doesn't, he waits. And then when he comes to Martha, he has this extraordinary conversation with her where he points out that what she thinks is her greatest need is for for him to raise Lazarus from the dead, but actually her greatest need is for him. And that's when he says those famous words, I am the resurrection, the life. Um, anyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Uh, uh, and... So I, I think that's a beautiful moment of the Bible showing how we meet with Jesus in our suffering. But then we have Jesus going to the graveside with the sisters and weeping over Lazarus and the marvel of the Son of God sort of shedding tears over the death of his man and the suffering of his friends. And then we see Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And I think those, those four moves, to me, give us a rich biblical theology for understanding suffering and knowing that it's a place where we meet Jesus and where we can trust him um, to bring to completion what he's promised for us.
1: Rebecca, the, those two responses, the, the one to Martha, you know, he kind of gets in her face a little bit, I'm the resurrection and the life, and with Mary he just weeps, and I think it's so beautiful on so many levels. Am I, I ask myself, am I always willing to step into people's discomfort? I mean, Jesus knew what he was going to do to Lazarus, yet he's spent time just weeping with Mary.
2: Yeah, and that's the crazy thing, that he knows the end of the story all along. I know. And, he's, and yet he's with us in it. And that is something that we as Christians can cling to every day of our lives.
1: Um, I'm, I agree. All right, another question that you address in the book, and I love this one because this comes up all the time. I mean, really, how could a loving God send people to hell?
2: I think this is the only truly, genuinely hard question that I address in the book. And I don't say that to <laughs> minimise the challenge of the other ones. Okay. But because I think, uh, from a from my perspective as a Christian, this is this is really where the, the rubber hits the road, and it's the the hardest question to grapple with. At the same time, it, it's a beautiful question because it forces us to to share the gospel with people. Um, and I think one of the misconceptions that people often have about hell, actually, whether they're Christians or not is they think of hell primarily as a place to which people get sent mm-hmm. on the basis of you know, seemingly arbitrary beliefs. And in fact, I think the, the biblical picture of hell is is far more relational than that. If, as I was saying earlier, if Jesus is the living water, then to be without him is to be desperately thirsty. If he is the bread of life, then to be without him is to to be painfully hungry. And if he is the light of the world, to be without Jesus is to be lost in the darkness. And the, the, the Christian faith opens up for us the possibility of coming back into relationship with the one who made us and into a relationship that's actually far more intimate than, um, than even you know, the picture that we, we get of, of relationship with God and, and Genesis of, of Adam and Eve um, before they, they sinned, where they knew God as creator, but not as, not as savior, not as lover, not as um, one body with them. Um, but just as with any other marriage, if, if we reject that offer, that proposal from Jesus, uh, he will ultimately reject us. Um, I think of, you know, my, my husband proposed to me, I guess, nearly 13 years ago now. And if I had said no to him, for me to turn around now and object to the fact that I didn't get to live in his house with him and I didn't get to be intimate with him in all these ways, I didn't get to raise children with him, um, you know, it would raise, raise the question of, well, you, you had that option and you, you turned it down, and now you're, you're facing the consequences of, of that choice. Um, and likewise, I think Jesus offers himself to us, uh, and um, if we turn away from him now, uh, that door won't always be open. It, it, it's open for a long time, but one day it'll shut, and that's when we will recognize quite how much we have lost.
1: Wow, that was really beautifully stated because it's so relational, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I think that the the Christian message is.
1: Mhm. Rebecca, talk a little bit about the nuns, the people that are going, "Uh, uh-uh, I got nothing. I I'm just my religion is
2: zip, zilch, nothing." And there's an increasing phenomenon, particularly in, in the Western world, although it's it's happening in um, – I was reading an article yesterday about how it's happening increasingly in majority of Muslim countries as well – of people saying, you know what, I, I don't see myself as religious. And actually, a significant proportion of, of religious nuns in America do say that they believe in God in one form or another, but they wouldn't affiliate with any particular religious tradition. Mm-hmm. It is growing proportionally in the U.S., and it can feel like, oh my goodness, this is just like a, a massive wave that's washing over – America, if you track generation to generation, people who are brought up as Protestant in the U.S. have an 80% chance of still identifying as Protestant as adults, Mm. whereas people who are brought up non-religious have only a 60% chance of still identifying as non-religious as adults. It's quite an unstable category being non-religious. And there's also a fascinating uh, wealth of data around the fact that regular religious participation, so going to church once a week, is demonstrably good for your mental and physical health and for your... um, you know, the way that you relate to others in the community. So we all know that eating more fruits and vegetables is good for us. Turns out going to church once a week is equivalently good for you health-wise. People who go to church every week give three, three 3.5 times more money to charity than than their non-attending friends. They volunteer twice as much. They're half as likely to be engaged in domestic violence. They're less likely to commit at least 43 other crimes. The list goes on and on and on.
3: Mm-hmm. So actually
2: the, the benefits of regular religious participation are quite substantial. And so the idea that actually the world would just be better off if, if we gave up on all this religion business is is verifiably untrue.
1: Fascinating. Rebecca, I think I want to start a new movement called Eating Fruits and Vegetables While Attending Church. Uh, they cover <laughs> right. a couple of bases at once. And
2: not smoking. <laughs> yes,
1: exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You are so interesting. I'd love to have you back. Uh, Thank you for being a guest.
2: All right. Thanks so much. It's great to be with you.
1: You bet. Rebecca McLaughlin has been my guest. Her book, again, is Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. We'll take a short break and be right back in just a minute.
0: listening to Afternoons with Bill Arnold that we want to hear from you. We'd love to know what you think about the show. Well, most of us do. Bill says this week he's only accepting 5-star reviews. Either way, you can take the official Afternoons with Bill Arnold listener survey. It just takes a couple of minutes and you get a chance to win an Amazon gift card. Text the word survey to 877-933-2484. Find it online at myfaithradio.com/survey.
1: back to the show you know most of the time adults surround kids to share the love of jesus to them in the case of my guest it was a group of kids that surrounded an adult to share that love and that man heard and received the gospel my guest bill butters has had kind of a rough and tumble history of high school college and professional hockey today he spends his god-appointed time surrounding himself with any and every group he can share the love of jesus with bill welcome to the show
4: well thanks and uh, thanks for having me I'm looking forward to chat with you guys
1: yeah well, I had uh, the pleasure and I, I of hearing you present Unfortunately, it was at a funeral of a friend, uh so that was not easy for probably uh, either of us because you loved this person as well. but there was a sense of urgency you spoke of, which to me is was so significant because you had had a conversation with someone else who was kind of at the end of his life, and he said to you, why didn't you talk to me about this earlier?
4: Yeah, um, I met a kid uh, on the way to kindergarten. His name was Len Smith, and uh, we became childhood friends and teenage friends, high school friends, and then uh, we went to different colleges, but we remained friends. He was the best man at my wedding, and I played pro hockey. He went on to a business career. And in 1980, we're celebrating in Minnesota the the miracle on ice. But in 1980, um, as you said, in the opening, a a group of young 12-year-old boys led me to Christ. And since that time, I've been sharing the gospel, but not with my close friends because um, we just don't talk politics. We don't really get much past the surface stuff for Mm -hmm. whatever reason. And uh, so my friend um, at age... 67 I got the bad news he had a a stage 4 brain tumor inoperable and I watched this healthy man my best friend uh, slowly kind of start fading away from a cane to a walker to a wheelchair to then just bedridden and I just I told my wife I said Debbie I, I don't know I think I know by the way Smitty acts but I've never talked to him about his faith in Jesus so one day uh, we had driven up and we were just sitting with he and his wife and I said, Smitty, you know what I do for right? He goes, yeah, you, you talk to hockey players about Jesus. And I said, right. And I said, uh, well, what about you, Smitty? Do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And he said, January 4th, 1982, I asked God to forgive my sins and the right of Christ and the right of my life as my Savior. And now I got a question for you, Buttsy He said, and I go, what's that, Smitty? He goes, I'm supposed to be your best friend, and why it is taking you so long to be talk, to talk about Jesus. And it just penetrated my heart that the people that are closest to us, rarely do we want to ruffle anybody's feathers and talk about things. They might see our lives change, but they don't really want to ask the tough questions, and we don't really want to ask the tough questions about them, like, do you know Jesus? We, I don't know, I, I at least that's my experience. And I I said from that point on, I'm, and I'm bold in my faith anyway, but I have become more bold <laughs> and uh, just talk about Christ with everybody I can.
1: It is uh, so interesting how we don't want to alienate longstanding friendships, but if you think about it, there's nothing more important than letting our dear people that we know and love uh, know about the love of Jesus if they have not come to a, a reconciliation with with God, and yeah.
4: and if they are longstanding friends, just think the the little dash between 1951 and and 2020 or 2019 is just a a small portion on the eternity time frame, and uh, we're alienating our friends forever if we don't talk to them about Jesus.
1: And and Bill, isn't it interesting how you get news every week of someone who is in maybe a stage of dying or have just died, and and it's uh, the rate at which we are losing friends and family members is, is is alarming, and just as a function of getting older, of course. But um, yeah. th- we should, as Christians, have a sense of incredible urgency, shouldn't we? Yeah,
4: that's not just yeah, and it's not just because we're close to or at least I'm close to seventy. My next birthday, I'll be 70. It's just not because of that, but the urgency of the cross. I mean, we're all dying, and we don't know if it's going to be by a car accident or by a drowning or, you know, whatever it may be, but that that shouldn't be the motivation. You know, the urgency is that we have the best news in the world. We have the hope of God through his son, Jesus Christ, that can give us abundant life, and we should be excited to share that news, not just waiting for a deathbed, you know, hey, conversion. So, yeah, I want my friends and hockey players everywhere to know the abundant life that God calls us to. And it starts now, not just when we die.
1: And I started uh, the introduction of you because it is so true that most adults try to organize activities where they can get around kids to tell them about Jesus. And in your case, kids came around you. Would you tell that story, Bill?
4: Okay. um, You know, uh, if anyone's ever heard of me? I, most of the people listening are either haven't heard or they're too old to remember. But anyway, uh, I was a tough hockey player, and uh, I had not a great childhood. I mean, not not a bad childhood. I, I was kind of a happy kid, but my folks got divorced when I was four, and my mom was married, divorced many times, and uh, I saw some things that a young boy shouldn't see, and and uh, it just wasn't a great home life. And uh, then I got a scholarship to play hockey at the university and, and I, I wanted to, to have a, a better home life than I had. I wanted to have a, a beautiful wife and kids and, and be real, a real good dad. And, but I also played pro hockey and I was, I was employed by a few different teams to be a person that played outside the rules of the game. And they didn't want me to play within the rules, they wanted to be an intimidator and an enforcer. So I lived seven years outside the rules of hockey and uh, I made a living at that and then unfortunately when you do that in one portion of your life it, it creeps into another area of my life, my personal life which I'm ashamed to say but I lived outside the rules of marriage for seven years. and. Uh, I had this gorgeous wife I met in college and uh, three beautiful kids, and I was not a good man. And a couple of my teammates saw that action, and they they invited me to a hockey camp. And I have to go back. um, My mother, uh, after my dad left when I was four years old, and she had these other marriages, she thought, well, maybe I should bring my kids to church. But because of her checkered past when she brought my two sisters and myself to church, people kind of snubbed her Mm. and uh, looked like, what's this person doing in this church? And I I grew up with a real distaste and uh, almost a hatred towards Christians because I saw the brokenness in my mom's face when uh, they kind of rejected her. So anyway, fast forward to now I'm a married man and and, uh, said all the vows at church that you're supposed to say. And uh, but never really believed anything. Never really read the Bible. Never really had a relationship with God at all. In fact, I went to church with my wife occasionally on Christmas and Easter, especially. But you know, once in a while, because she was raised in uh, that way and she thought church was important, and I just kind of never really bought into the whole program. So now, um, my friend asked me to come to this camp, and he said, "I said, yeah." because we didn't make millions of dollars like they do today. The average salary in the National Hockey League when I played was 55000 and now the average salary is $2.4 million. So uh, we needed to work in the summer. Sometimes we work hockey schools, and I said, how much are you going to pay me if I come to your hockey camp? And he said, well, it's a Christian camp, and uh, we want everyone to volunteer. And I said, you know, I'm not much on Christianity and fast, I hate Christians. And um, but if I did come, how much would you pay me? And he said, well, like I said, it's a Christian camp and we want everybody to volunteer. And I said, you know, that's what I hate about Christians. They pass that big brass plate at church and people throw all that cash in there. And, and, but everybody volunteers. I said, someone's getting rich off this deal. So that was my attitude towards Christianity. Anyway, my wife, had heard this conversation on the phone and kind of marked on the calendar that i had committed to go to this camp so when the time came to go to the camp i really had no intention of going but when you're married and your wife puts something on a calendar you go so i went to this camp and i was utterly shocked to see that these hockey players didn't even know the hockey language they weren't swearing they, were, they took their glove off and shook my hand. They were real polite. They were nice kids. And I go, man, these kids aren't even hockey players. They don't even know how to talk. And uh, so one night, after three days of them kind of harassing me about have, going to lunch with them and reading the Bible, I kept saying, no, no. And one night, they asked me to go to chapel. And at that chapel, I heard that I had a heavenly father and I didn't even have an earthly father but I had a heavenly father that loved me so much that he sent Jesus, his son, to pay my penalty. And then they use this hockey analogy that the goalie, if he gets a penalty in hockey, he never has to go to the box, but the coach picks a teammate and that teammate will go serve him. And that's just like, just like our Christian faith. God, our heavenly coach, chose a teammate, his son Jesus, To go to the penley box not 85 feet from the bench but across at calvary to take away your sin and your shame and your guilt and give you a new life and for the first time i it kind of clicked to me that maybe there is something because i knew i was a sinful man and and i was living a double life and it was it was not peaceful to live that way anyway so i was walking out just kind of contemplating what had been said tonight and these little 12 year old boys came up to me and they they asked me to join them in their little huddle group and I didn't know what that was it's just a Bible study and so they had 16 12 year old boys and they were they were excited because I was a 30 year old tough rugged hockey player and uh, they were going to ask me questions about how many goals I scored and how many fights I won and 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 stuff like that and and then they started telling me that Jesus was the toughest guy that ever lived and I go, you mean the guy that has long hair and it, he uses conditioner in it and his beard's always trimmed up and a white he has a white robe on and he's got a lamb on his shoulder and he, he's petting some little kid on the top of the head? I go, that's not my idea of toughness. I said, that guy's not tough. And he's, the little 12-year-old boy said, Coach, it doesn't take any toughness to use bad language. It doesn't take any toughness at all to hit someone with your stick or drop your gloves and fight someone. It takes real toughness to love people that have hurt you and forgive people that have hurt you. And uh, that's what what toughness is, and that's who Jesus was. And I'm going, wow. Here I am, a 30-year-old professional hockey player, teaching kids how to shoot and pass a puck, and they're teaching me about the Savior of the world. And I listened to them, and then they were going to close in prayer, and they uh, they started praying out loud, and I never even prayed. And a little 12-year-old boy prayed that I could know what peace was. And the next little boy said, I pray that Coach Butters could know what love is. And then one little boy um, prayed, I pray that Coach Butters could know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And uh, for the first time in my life, I started to cry and uh, I got down on my knees and those little boys just came around me and they put their hands on me and they led me in a prayer to receive Jesus as my savior. So that's the real miracle on ice that we're celebrating in 1980. That happened July 7th, 1980 and I know we're celebrating uh, the gold medal, Herb Brooks, my old college coach winning uh, the gold medal in 1980, but the little miracle on ice happened in that little dorm room. And, uh, yeah, little boys had enough courage to pray for a tough, broken-down hockey player.
1: Yeah, just spectacular, uh, Bill. Bill Butters is my guest. I'm going to take a little break. When we come back, uh, more time with Bill. Welcome back to the show. So glad to be talking to Bill Butters today. He's a former professional uh, hockey player, and now he is spending all of his time and energy sharing the love of Jesus uh, with groups and, and hockey groups and uh, players and teams. And so, Bill, when you get a chance to talk to groups in chapels and chapels and you get them together, what are what's the tone? What are the what are the ears like? When they are they listening and hearing? Are they uh, warm and receptive to the gospel? What, what's your feedback?
4: Well, it's funny you ask that. Our chapel lesson this, this week, actually, for the teams I meet with, are, are the, uh, the parable of the sower. And uh, Jesus is using the, the analogy of the farmer sowing his seed. And some fell on hard ground, and some fell on rocky soil, and some fell on thorny soil, and some fell on good soil. And, and that's the temperature of the locker room. I mean, some people are hard-hearted at first some people you know they get excited they get inspired and the, the seed springs up quickly and then as soon as they get a little push back they kind of fade out and then some just they, they get excited and they come for. then all of a sudden the pressure of not scoring or you know what the pro scouts are saying about them or whatever you know kind of chokes out and they kind of pull back but then there's some guys that hear it and they receive it and they just grow and they flourish so the parable of the sword is the world, you know, it's just, that's how it is. But most guys, whether they're pro hockey players or division one college or, or, or squirty or bantams, whatever teams I meet, everyone is hungry to be loved by someone and everyone wants to be accepted. And when I tell them that God loves them no matter what and Jesus loves them no matter what, and you can be forgiven, And then, I don't know if you've ever been to a hockey game, Bill, I'm sure you have, and maybe your audience has, but every 20 minutes, a miracle happens at an ice hockey rink. The end doors open up, and the Zamboni comes out, and it picks up the brokenness, the broken sticks, the spit, the snot rockets, the broken ice, and it picks all the stuff up and lays a smooth, warm layer of water, and it fills in the cracks, and it gives us a clean sheet of ice. And that's what God will do for your, our lives, I tell them. You know, God will pick that stuff up if you've come from a divorce, if your girlfriend's dumped you, if you're not on the first line. God can use that. He can give you a clean sheet of ice, you know, to skate on. I guess that's the wrong answer to your question. I love it's, it, though. Some people say, yay, I want to learn more. Some people say, ah, it's not for me. But the, the, there's a couple of guys from foreign countries that, Really, they don't have much faith across the pond in a lot of places. But when they come and they hear, because they've never opened up a Bible, and they've, they're just, it's hearsay. And even in America and in Canada, it's, it's mainly hearsay. People, whether they're men or women, have rarely opened up the Word of God. And, you know, it says in Romans 12, um, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's good, pleasing, and perfect will is. And when they see that God's Word can transform them and the Holy Spirit can empower them, it's it's life-changing still today. So it's the most exciting job
1: that I've ever had. You know, it's interesting when, you know, younger athletes are striving for significance— um, it's hard for them to understand that, that God has a plan and God loves them and God wants them to surrender their authority to Him. Um, and I think of uh, Mark 8, 36. When you think of uh, the passage where it says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? You think of some of the the money that athletes are getting paid today. And I recently heard a discussion that Aaron Rodgers said where he just kind of has abandoned his faith and has now be, sort of become more agnostic or atheist, saying that why would God, you know, want to send the majority of his uh, creation to a fiery hell?
4: The bad thing is, that's bad theology, because God, if you read the Word, says He he's slow, Jesus is slow in coming because he doesn't want anyone to perish. Right. We're sending ourselves there by the choices we make. God's not sending there. You know, it's just like getting a, uh, an invitation to a wedding. I think I shared that at the funeral. I mean, it says RSVP. You know, everybody's invited, but how do you respond? You know, RSVP responds to who played. God says, you know, I love you. Do you love me back? Accept my son. Accept my invitation. So God's not sending anybody there.
1: Yeah, but it's not very often that a person who is saying something like that gets corrected with good theology and sound doctrine.
4: Yeah, and that's why, I mean, I, I'm just a hockey player, and I'm not the brightest bulb on the tree sometimes, but I'll tell you, God, God, I've had surgeries on my shoulder, on my nose. I take medication for seizures that I've, I've had so many concussions, but the greatest surgery he ever performed happened in that dorm room in 1980 with 12-year-old boys. I mean, they were smelly. They were stinky. They they didn't have it their doctorate degree. They didn't have their scrubs on, but God used them to take away my heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh. Yeah, And, I- and you know, that—that that is the beauty of the gospel. God can take away Aaron Rodgers' heart of stone. He can put in a heart of flesh. He just has to let the Spirit of God touch his heart again.
1: And Bill, I'd say those little 12-year-old stinky group of kids were leading with love. They, they loved oh, yeah. Coach Butters, didn't they?
4: They did. And, you know, I like to put four or five golf balls on my mouth and take my tooth out and, you know, do stupid stuff. And uh, you build a relationship with kids and, and all of a sudden they see that you care about them. So they're going to be caring about you and they're going to be caring about what you say. And that's that's the beauty of relationships. That's the beauty of God. That's why He came to, to Earth at Christmas, you know, and we celebrate God with us, Emmanuel. He came to show us He cares and loves and wants a relationship. And once we enter into that, it's beautiful.
1: hmm So it's been a while since you've been playing professional hockey, if you're pushing 70. And yeah. I know that you uh, were the tough guy. And so when you see tough guys out on the ice today, do you, do you think, uh, boy, that was me, or what do you think nowadays?
4: You know, it's just like a plumber or an electrician or a pastor. You know, if it's their calling, if it's their job, it's within the rules of the game. I go, you know, you're going to get hurt. You're going to lose some teeth. Your nose is going to, you might you get your nose broken. You might have a concussion. You might have to, you know, but that's what they're paying you to do. Do it to the best of your ability. Yeah. You know, I mean, I look at football players. They hit guys harder than people punch, I can tell you that. You get a six-six, two 270-pound guy hitting you from the blind side in the back. I, I'm, I'm amazed that a quarterback can even live after a game, more or less play another one. So they get hit harder than anybody gets hit in a fight. And as long as it's in the rule book, you know, I, I say go at it. But I I just know there might be a better way. But, you know, we're everyone's trying to make it. And uh to get the approval, you know, of, of people and I would like to say there might be a better way for you, but maybe that's a skill set they have. I mean there's a lot of warriors in the Bible. You know, a lot of people did more than drop their gloves and punch each other for three or four minutes.
1: Yeah, Bill, we just got you a know? Yeah. We just got a couple of minutes left. I'm curious your reaction to the programming of sports uh for kids today, where there's oh, they're on schedules that are almost inconceivable and Parents are carting them around, and they have games Sunday morning at nine. What do you think of all that?
4: I think youth sports and, and youth activities are, are probably the, one of the killers of the church attendance. In fact, I know it is. You know, I mean, everybody's gone, and they. I, I was amazed. I told my wife. I said, on on last Sunday, I said, Debbie, this is the only Sunday this year that we haven't had youth sports. Oh, wow. I know why. It's Super Bowl Sunday. They're going to worship. <laughs> they're going to worship the Super Bowl. No coach wants to miss Super Bowl, yeah. whether it's hockey, basketball, volleyball. I just think, yeah. I mean, when I was growing up, I wasn't a Christian, but I always remember, where's all the kids on Wednesday nights? <laughs> Where, where's <laughs> all the kids on Sunday? Yeah. You know, and I'm I'm the only guy that probably never went to church. And now I'm going to church, but well, where's all the kids? <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, so true. And I remember, you know, when I was a kid, um... Sports were something kids did. I mean, the, the baseball yeah. schedule was on the refrigerator, and my yeah. mom would say, you know, you have a game of two today. So I'd get on my bike and go and play the game and then come home. I mean, there, yeah. people didn't show up and watch.
4: <laughs> no. No, it's funny. I just was with my grandson. I said, I said hey, Maxie, how do you do? You like it when everyone comes to games? Yeah, I really like it. I said, you know what? You're lucky. I played three sports my whole life, and my mom and dad never came to any of my youth sports. That Not one was, game.
1: That was just the time, wasn't it, Bill? Yeah. Well, it's just a, del- a delight uh, talking to you. Thank you so much for sharing your story and, and your encouragement to all the listeners. All right. God bless you, and thanks yeah. for calling. Yep. God bless Bye-bye. you. Bill Butters has been my guest. That's all the show we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in, and thank you for being such a great supporters of Faith Radio. It means the world to me. I hope you have a wonderful night. Psalm 20, verse 4 says, May he give you the desires of your heart and make all your plans succeed. Time to ring the bell. See you next week.